Romans chapter number 8. If you'll join me there, Romans chapter number 8. We're looking forward to getting back in this chapter and uh, continue with what we left off just a couple weeks ago. Brother Dick's going to come down the middle aisle. If you need an outline, we'd love for you to get one, follow along with us. That would be fantastic. And just a way to kind of stay on task, the, see some of the organization that Paul has put into the letter. And uh, uh, it's a great passage. I tell you, it's hard to believe we're almost halfway through the book of Romans, 16 chapters, and here we are, Romans chapter number 8, and uh, uh, looking forward to delving in a little bit more. Real quick, let's look at where we're at, and starting back in verse number 14, verse number 14, you can see where we've already, uh, we're talking about the Holy Spirit and how the Spirit introduces us to family life. We talked about that. We won't rehash it. Uh, you can remember it, or you can get on the website and listen, and uh, that's Roman number one. Roman number number two, we saw how the Spirit confirms our future glory, and uh, that important point here, letter A, I love this statement, the sufferings of this present time. Time, the statement that Paul makes of uh, this present time, though unworthy to be compared to our future glory, are part of our adaption. And we compared the reality that God said that um, we are adopted. And here, these verses here, God through Paul said that. And then he says, now I'm going to adapt you for glory. I'm going to grow you through this life. You're now my child. I'm now preparing you for glory in the day of redemption. And so, uh, crucial. What we saw also now in this passage, we just started this two weeks ago. The sufferings are pictured in three groanings. The three groanings now laid out for us. And we, we talked about um, here, it's described in verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groaneth. And so that's where we rest, uh, wrestled with or settled in, I should say, how that the groanings of creation here in these verses describe how creation all around us is groaning. And at first, it doesn't make, it doesn't seem to, we wouldn't think of it at first, I should say, but reality is all of creation is groaning for the day of redemption. They're looking ahead. It's looking ahead. And uh, why? Well, Genesis told us, Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, that God saw everything he created in what? It was very good. And reality is, it's not very good anymore. Sin has corrupted it. Sin has stained it. Sin has messed it up. And so even creation is looking for the day that, that our redemption is going to be fulfilled. And I, such a great truth. I, uh, we put it this way, if we could summarize it. The, curse, uh, the curses of sin will be lifted off of man and his creation. And this groaning creation will one day be a glorious creation. And uh, if you think about it from the, the working the fields or whether the animal kingdom or whatever the case may be, it's going to be a glorious creation that this groaning is going to be changed into. All right, now we want to pick up, look at verse 23 and following, and uh, some good verses, good packed full of information here. Notice it, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we, are all, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the redemption uh, or excuse me, for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. Verse 24, for we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for what we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Uh, pack full of stuff. What, what do we have? Well, number three is what we have uh, before us, and that should say three, not one. I apologize. The groaning of believers. The groaning of believers. Uh, the groaning of believers. And uh, 
Actually, excuse me, that is number two. I apologize. This is number two. The groaning, don't write it in three. That has two blanks, okay? We'll, I'll catch up with you in a few moments. Don't worry. Okay, so the groaning of believers. Right. Important note here. If you'll look at that verse again, notice that there's a word italicized. It's the word they. And uh, what we understand is his reference is back to the creation here. And so first, the attention is brought to you and I as believers. Not only does creation groan, and that's the, the they. And, and for, don't, don't forget that often in our scriptures where we see an italicized word. It was added by the translators. It wasn't in the original manuscript. It was added for clarification's sake or understanding and so forth. So when we read they, we think of a personal pronoun referring to people or something. Really, it's talking about all of creation. So we as believers are now joining creation in groaning. Uh, fact is this, we ought to be groaning today for our redemption to happen as believers groaning for it. The older I get, the more I groan. I would think that many of you would agree. The older we get, the more we groan, right? Not just about the aches and pains, but I've said it before. Boy, I am groaning for my heavenly home. You ever just sigh? I mean, I wish I was in heaven. Okay, for me, my wife says, don't say that. <laughs> but I, man, boy, you, you sigh, you groan for heaven. That's what it's speaking of here. Man, I, I, w- once I have been introduced, once we have been introduced to the glories of heaven that are possible through Jesus Christ, my friend, we ought to groan for heaven. Well, look forward to it. It ought to be the thing that we desire and look forward to. And, and yet, in that, we aren't there yet. And so what we are told here is that the Holy Spirit indwelling us, enabling us, and empowering us is the first fruits of our standing in the family of God. Literally, today, you and I have a foretaste of heaven. We have a foretaste of our redemption. We have a foretaste of the day that our bodies are going to be glorified, which we look forward to. It's the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And what a gift He is and the first fruits of it, that foretaste of glory uh, of what awaits us in heaven. And it's a taste that we ought to groan for more and more each day. Think of it in terms of this, and I think that's something that brings it home, and we've kind of used it in a sense before as an illustration, but think how when those spies came back to the promised land, one of the things we, we always key in on, we teach our children, and many of us have learned it from uh, when we were a wee little child in Sunday school, how they brought back the clusters of grape, they brought back the first fruits, literally, of the promised land. This was the first fruit, the, the first that any of them had seen or, or really even heard or understand it comprehended what that promised land was going to be like concerning the produce and the product of it the provision of the promised land could you imagine what it would have been like as they brought back those first fruits and then everything was uh forfeited through their sin of doubt their sin of lack of faith and trust and so they forfeited that and the reality is for 40 years all they could remember and all they had was in a taste in their mouth of what they missed out on and that a whole generation died, and you better be assured and understand that for 40 years, and then on their deathbed, they were groaning and sighing about what they had missed out on. They'd gotten a taste for it. I can, forgive my sometimes juvenile um, thank you, but it, what, what do you think Caleb and Joshua were like? For 40-something years, they've been telling them how good the grapes were. Yeah, you ever tell somebody about a restaurant or something? They have the best this. For 40 years, that younger, that young crowd, all those millennials back then, I uh, had to listen to Caleb and Joshua talking about how good the grapes are, how good the fruit is, and everything else. And mean, they finally got to the promised land. Can I tell you, it's probably better than anything they had ever imagined. 
See, that's literally, when you and I have the, the Holy Spirit indwelling us, as we do as believers, literally, what does he say? The first fruits of glory. So enjoy your taste of glory and be thankful there's more to come. That God has a lot in store. And so the Holy Spirit is that. He is, a, he is a provision of this future glory, a glimpse, a taste of it right before our eyes or, or literally um, right before our mouths in the sense of a taste. Notice that this verse also reminds us that our adoption and our redemption is not complete. Important point here, very key to the rest of the passage. Paul says, listen, don't forget, you have not arrived yet. You haven't been glorified. And yeah, yeah redemption has not culminated it hasn't reached its its final point so don't forget that and that's what he says here we are waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body so it hasn't happened yet and you say well pastor henry this is the end of the day my body reminds me already that this we have not been redeemed we we have not been uh restored or glorified i should say in that sense the day is coming though when it'll be so i i like this description of the verse it's the manifestation of our our sonship is going to be made. The manifestation of our sonship. Everybody's going to know that we are the children of God in that day. It's a thrilling climax to what has begun here, and yet it's a climax that is yet to come when Christ returns, that full redemption. That's what Paul speaks of in verse 24. He makes an interesting statement. At first, at first read, it's kind of a startling statement. He says that we are saved by hope. Literally, we are saved by hope. See, don't understand, or understand, don't mistake it. He's not saying in any way referencing that this has nothing to do with the salvation of our souls or the salvation of a soul. Rather, he's speaking of the redemption of our bodies that is the culminating event of the finalization of our adoption and our adaption. So what he's referring to when he says, listen, we are saved by hope is this. You know it's coming. You can put your faith and trust that it's coming. And today, though, this, though I'm fighting sin, sin and I feel horrible in this body, I am saved in my mind and looking forward to by the hope that I have that this body is going to be redeemed. See, every day this body falls apart, every day that I'm fighting and wrestling with sin, I can cling to that hope, that, that biblical hope, that one day I'll be done with it. And that's what Paul's saying here. It's not referring to salvation by hope or anything like that. Remember, uh, it's Paul that said this, you, you know, well, looking for that blessed Hope, right? Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of uh, great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what he's speaking to, our redemption of our bodies, when we're going to have a glorified body. He helps us to understand now through these next few statements and verses the concept of biblical hope. Notice again, let's read it for sake of understanding, verse 24. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that which we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Okay, so let's understand and let's put it into context. In the present usage of our word, the word hope, we attach great uncertainty to it. Okay. In other words, there's not a fixed outcome. In other words, we could say easily, I hope tomorrow it doesn't rain. Chances are it will. We live in Michigan, right? And right now, presently. So we, we attach this uncertainty to it. I hope this. I hope I feel better tomorrow. I, I hope we have this for dinner. And it, it's this uh, kind of uh, lack of a fixed outcome. Well, that, We know that not to be biblical hope. 
Because what do we know about biblical hope? Well, biblical hope is not based upon wishful thinking, which is that I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. I hope I can get this fixed. I hope I can do this. And that's wishful thinking. Well, biblical hope is not based upon wishful thinking or probability. But rather, and here's the key, biblical hope is fixed on the integrity of the clear promises of God. My hope biblically, the, 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 the redemption of my body, the, the future culmination of my adoption in Christ, that's not based on a hope so. It's based upon the integrity of God's promises. And can I tell you, you know what the Bible says. We always turn to the Scripture. God keeps His promises. There's no shadow of turning with Him as there is with mankind. He keeps his promise. So his integrity is off the charts. <laughs> you can take it to the bank. And so my trust, my faith, and the hope that he has put before us is based upon the integrity of his promises. And yet Paul brings up now in these verses the idea of seeing something and hoping for it which is not hope. That's what he said. So if you saw it, it's not hope. In other words, I can say this, okay? Right now, um, we're into preaching here. We're, we're into uh, to the service some 35-odd minutes. And boy, I am thirsty. I, I mean, I really wish there was a Dr. Pepper in this pulpit. I, you know, I, I, I would love some of that heavenly nectar if there's one in here. Oh, look, there happens to be one. What a blessing. My hopes have come true. Isn't that wonderful? Now, now you say, well, that's not hope. No, it isn't. Why? Because I knew it was in there be kind of weird for me to reach under there. Actually, that'd be kind of cool, not weird, but uh, I, I knew it was there. Why? Because I put it there, right? I, I have seen it, and I, I knew it was there. That, that's not hope. That's not biblical hope, okay? And, uh, and Paul says what? That, well, Pastor Henry, you shouldn't hope there's a Dr. Pepper in there if you put one. That doesn't make sense. That's what Paul's saying. If we've seen it and we understand that, uh, that, that it's there, we ha- we've seen something. You know, you, know, you, you don't say, uh, for instance, you don't say, hey, well, I hope that the church hasn't fallen in. Well, you're here and you see it, okay? So that doesn't make sense, all right? You can say you hope it doesn't, <laughs> but I hope it didn't fall in. Well, you're here. You've seen it. That's a, literally Paul's explain. Now, let's use the illustration. Let's say this, okay? Well, you want a different kind of hope? Well, I sure hope there's a diet, Dr. Pepper, because I'm going to die. I hope there's a diet, Dr. Pepper, in my car when I walk out tonight. Well, that would be fantastic. Now, that's a hope because I know there's nothing in there. And uh, I've seen my car. There's nothing inside, okay? Now, that's a biblical hope. That's literally what Paul's saying. It is a clear point that Paul's making for you and I. Because you know what? There's many people on earth say this. If I could see God, I could believe him. See, that's not biblical hope. That's not faith and trust. That's not resting on the integrity of the promises of God. What a God. Hey, in the beginning, God. So I take that promise, that statement of Scripture, I put my faith and trust in it, in the integrity of the Word of God, and then for future happenings, integrity in the promises of God, the prophecies of God, I haven't seen it, but I'm resting in it because God said it was so. And His integrity is flawless. And Paul's literally saying, man, we have a great hope, a looking ahead, a, a, a looking forward to Uh, to this promise of our redemption. Paul says, why would you hope for what you've already seen? It doesn't make sense. But hope for that which we see not, uh, that is true hope. That is, it's, it's not a hope so that involves low probability. See, what makes all the difference, the biblical hope is so much better because it rests upon the integrity of the promises of God. It's not based upon sight. 
And, and what does he say our future response then is? That's where he comes to in verse 25. He says, okay, if that's the case, here's our response. We ought to be patiently waiting in this life of sufferings. He just said that the sufferings ought not to be compared to future glory. So we ought to be patiently waiting in this life of sufferings for the promise of our future glory to be fulfilled. This is what he describes in verse 23, waiting for our adoption in redemption. Now listen, think on that for a second, because we ought to immediately, logically, if we think as we read the scriptures, we ought to ask questions that, that make us think and really, so wait a second, why am I waiting for my adoption? Aren't I already adopted? Why, why does he say waiting for my adoption? Well, yes, we're already adopted. Literally, if we could describe it this way, all the paperwork's done. You've been legally adopted. It's a done deal. There's no turning back. There's no arguing with it. There's no going back whatsoever. You are adopted. But you know, like on earthly adoption, the day comes where a child who's being adopted in a family comes before a judge, and that judge hits the final gavel, and that adopted child goes home with the one who's adopted him or her. It's a beautiful sight if you've ever been a part of an adoption. A child, a young boy, young girl, a couple, whatever. Uh, that final day when everything's been approved and everything's done, it's a done deal, literally. There's just kind of going through the rigmarole, the, the official thing where the judge sends them home with the one who adopted them. Hey, the process is done. It didn't happen on that day. They're just being sent home to live with them. My friend, can I tell you, you're adopted. The day's coming when we're going home to live with the one who adopted us. We stand at the end of our lives. We stand before the judge, literally God himself. The fact is we get to go home with him. Uh, that declaration. And so here we are. That's what Paul says. Listen, we have a great hope. Take the Holy, look at the Holy Spirit indwelling you. Sense the leading of the Spirit. Yield to him. And understand that it's a foretaste of the glory that we will experience in the future. First takeaway for today, if we might put it as such, is this. That this call at the end of this passage is to display the patience in our waiting. Okay? Don't throw in the towel. Don't, don't turn your back on God and His Word. Don't, don't stop trying to pursue holiness. Don't stop trying to please God and bring others with you to heaven. Patiently wait. Be a patient waiter for the redemption of your body. Understand, we know where we are right now. We know we're suffering. We know there's things happening in our lives and there's events and sin and, and there's the enemy that's seeking whom he may devour like a lion. Understand it. Embrace it. Re it's the reality. Now just patiently wait for the redemption because here's what I know. God is not a liar. He keeps his word. The day is coming. Redemption draweth nigh. And so, friend, it does. So take it to the bank is what Paul says. Listen, boy, you have the Holy Spirit. Man, this is the promise. This is what you have before you. Now, look at verse 26. Just the first word. Look at it. And, uh, man, what a good verse, too. It just flows. Likewise. He says likewise. So we understand. It tells us we're dealing with the same thought, the same subject of these preceding verses. Literally, that patient waiting, the enduring of the present groanings as we await our future redemption and the culmination of our adoption. So, what have we already established? Creation is growing. You and I as believers, our bodies are growing. We're groaning because we look forward to the day that we throw off this shell and our glorified bodies are uh, possessed. We're looking forward to it. And now he tells us what else is happening. The third groaning. Look at verse 26, the rest of it. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. 
but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with, with groanings which cannot be uttered. You got it. You understand the third groaning is simple. Well, it's the groaning of the Holy Spirit, right? The groaning of the Holy Spirit. And that leads us into Roman number three, which, uh, again, we've seen the Spirit introduces us to family life. The Spirit confirms our future glory. Then now number three, the Spirit helps with our present infirmities. Our present infirmities. So the Holy Spirit, again, is the gift that keeps on giving. It's that uh, earnest, that down payment, the first fruits. And boy, Paul uses many descriptions of who he is. But here's the third one. The Holy Spirit helps us with our present infirmities. Okay, let's uh, exegetically tear the verse apart, okay? First of all, when Paul, Paul writes, the Holy Spirit helpeth our infirmities, we must first understand right away, he's not speaking of illnesses. He's not speaking of your cold. He's not speaking of your bum knee. He's not, he's not speaking of a, a, a malady that affects our physical body. That's not what he's speaking of. A hurt shoulder, what I, uh, though the Holy Spirit is able to do that, okay? I'm not saying that. What we're understanding is contextually, he's not speaking of the infirmities of your, bi- of your body, like something that's not working like it used to. We all have those, right? And uh, muscles and everything else. And that's not what he's speaking of. In context of the passage, in the book of Romans, Paul's making it has made it very clear that we're still living in this old sin-stained, sin-cursed flesh. And as we look forward to possessing our glorified bodies, it hasn't happened yet. Our redemption draweth nigh, but it isn't it has not happened as of yet. And so our greatest weakness right now is not old age or the hurting body. Our greatest weakness is our innate spiritual weakness or our infirmities is our innate spiritual weakness the fact that we aren't glorified that we're still wrestling the old flesh within it's true even after salvation see what paul keeps going back to and what we've reminded ourselves of is you and i cannot do anything good cannot accomplish anything great spiritually unless it's through the holy spirit so as Paul strives to teach you and I as believers, not only this book, but every book he writes, every epistle, hey, you've got to yield to the Holy Spirit. You've got to produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You've got to fall in line and follow the Holy Spirit. Why? Because that's the only way we're going to get anything done, the only way that any good can be done. Paul's treatise. If you say, okay, what, what, what would be Paul's treatise on this truth? Well, really, it's the letter to the church at Philippi. Verse 19, he, he references that, that things, good works and, and good, uh, uh, good witnessing, really, his, his uh, deliverance and everything else is going, only going to happen, he says this, listen, through the supply of the Holy Spirit. He says, you pray, but we trust deliverance is going to happen through your prayers in the supply of the Holy Spirit. Then chapter 2, he just keeps moving right through the book, and he says this, hey, it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It's the Holy Spirit that's going to work in you both to desire and have the will, but also the wherewithal to accomplish it. So, And he continues throughout the book of Philippians. So that's really the ultimate goal of God working in our lives is to do the will of God, the pleasure of God, as Paul put it there. And uh, so here's one of the parts that the Holy Spirit plays. Here's one of his jobs. You want to know the the ministries of the Holy Spirit within us? Here's one of it. Notice what Paul describes you and I in literally part of the spiritual infirmity. Did you catch it? He said this, we don't know how to pray as we ought. 
We don't know how to pray as we ought. It's a, it's a, it's a slap in the face. It's kind of just, he puts it there. In fact, there's no elaboration. He really doesn't explain what he means. He, he doesn't give us a statement beyond saying that we have an inability to pray as we should or we need. I would describe it as a very all-encompassing statement. When he says, yeah, we don't know how to pray, we, uh, we mess up spiritually praying at times, and, uh, and we can quickly identify that we have imperfect perspectives, don't we? Sunday night's message dealt with that. He, we see the temporal, he sees the eternal. He sees the present, uh, or he sees the internal ramifications. What do we see? The present inconveniences. So at times, you and I have an imperfect perspective. Other times, we have limited minds. I'll often say it because I, have to re- I, I, I need to remind myself, my finite mind cannot understand all the things that an infinite God says. Say, my finite mind, your finite mind, we can't comprehend not only what he says, but what he is doing completely and perfectly. I look forward to the day in heaven when we can see more and understand more. But right now, we are limited. And, these, and we can list many, many ways in which that is true, our spiritual inadequacies. But here's the bottom line in what happens. They make us so that we are unable to pray in absolute and perfect consistency with the will of God. My spiritual inadequacies, how does he put it? Our infirmities. My number one infirmity is not my bum knee. It's not my shoulder, my um, aneurysm. That's not my number one infirmity. As a person, and even as a believer, my number one infirmity is my spiritual weakness. Because of my flesh and the fact that I have not received my glorified body yet. And so in that, I don't know how to pray perfectly, consistently with God's will. And for a moment, if you sit there and you think, well, I've got it down. Let me ask you this one. Has every one of your prayers and prayer requests been answered with yes and in the way you wanted it to? Not mine. There's times where I've prayed this and God has answered this way and completely different. And hasn't it been often that we, in hindsight, look back and say, yeah, I like your plan better than mine. See, what does that show us? That I'm spiritually weak. That I, there, are, there are times that I don't know what to pray. I don't know, has anybody ever shared a situation with you? You're like, man, I, I, that's overwhelming. I don't know what you should do. Let's pray about it. And, and, and you're praying, you don't, you're saying, even in prayer, I don't even know what to pray about. It, it's a spiritual inadequacy that is expressed. The fact is this, we must admit that we don't know how needs are best met all the time. You say, I don't know, Pastor. I think we can. Let me ask you this. What Paul pray? Take this thorn from me. How many times? Three times. How many times did God take it away? Boop. <laughs> Left it. So Paul's saying, hey, I think that this need would best be met. And we would definitely say that Paul was walking with God and he was in good communion and fellowship with God. And the reality is in his flesh, in the infirmity of his flesh, in the infirmity of his spiritual inadequacy, Paul didn't know the best need of it because God said what? This is the best meeting of your need. What was it? Grace. And not just grace, sufficient grace. And you say, well, fact is this okay so all right pastor there's times that we don't know how needs best met but but what else well another thing you know sometimes we don't even know that there's a need say there's a time when christ turned to peter and said peter listen satan desires you 
And he wants to sift you like wheat. I would say in context in that passage, Peter didn't have a clue that Satan was coming after him. And Christ says, listen, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to intercede on your behalf that you stay strong, that you, you resist the devil, that you flee from him. And Peter's like, what? The devil's coming. Forget me. We just studied Peter on Sunday morning. What do you think Peter did? Peter's like, what? Where, where is he? Where? He's coming for me? Unaware of the need. Now, now, could we not admit this evening that there are times that you and I have a need in our life that we don't even know about, and the Holy Spirit's praying for that need? He's interceding on our behalf. You know, describe it as prayer interceding. The fact is this, the Holy Spirit is going to bat for you on a daily basis. Man, what a, what a great gift we have in Him. What He's doing for us, and Paul's describing it here. It's a, and notice his description of it. As the Holy Spirit steps in, he intercedes, he expresses our truest needs before God in heaven, even when we don't know what they are, and when we can't express them accurately in prayer. Have you ever had a prayer time, and I readily admit, in all transparency, there's been time that I've cried out to God, God, I don't know what to pray, just help me. And my friend, can I tell you, that's where you and I come to our end, the Holy Spirit begins. And his groanings are uttered for you and I. Now that's a description too, isn't it? The Spirit itself maketh intercession for us which, with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now that's an interesting word. We've been talking about these groanings all along. Literally what Paul describes in describing this work of the Holy Spirit, he says that it's with groanings that are beyond human understanding, human comprehension. Uh, in that, he comes alongside of us. He bears our greatest and heaviest burdens, some burdens we don't even know, those that are weighing us down we don't know about. We would describe it this way. I think it's an appropriate description of this groaning of the Holy Spirit. It's an agonizing spiritual longing that cannot be expressed in human words. An agonizing spiritual longing that cannot be expressed in human words. The Greek word translated as groanings here is a unique one in that it's only used two places in all Scripture in the New Testament, obviously, being Greek. And what's interesting about it, as it is used, notice the other situation or other uh, passage situation it's used. In Acts chapter 7 and verse number 34, you have Stephen who is recounting before his stoning the, uh, the story of the Jews. And he speaks of God's hearing the cry of Israel and then in response sending Moses to deliver him. Notice the statement. I have seen, I, this is God speaking to Moses, I have seen, I have seen the affliction of my people which is in Egypt and I have heard their groaning and am come down to deliver them and now come i will send thee into egypt now can i ask you for a moment if you could picture if you could seek to understand the intensity and the heart investment of the prayers and cries of the israelites I think it gives us a pretty good description of what the Holy Spirit did and does. 
See, when they were in Egypt and they were being oppressed and they were being massacred and killed and, and uh, their tally increased and everything else and they were crying out to God and, and pleading for Him for His deliverance of His people and, and just begging and desiring that, we can kind of picture that in our minds, that understanding. And then what does Paul say? Paul says, listen, hey, like that, here's the Holy Spirit on a daily basis on your behalf. Not for Himself, but for you before God. Such hard investment, such intensity, we are not deserving of. Then he says this, notice it in verse 27. He that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now get a hold, first of all, the Holy Spirit is there. He is, he is interceding on your behalf with utterances um, and groanings which cannot be uttered. Uh, in, in great intensity and heart invested. Boy, the Holy Spirit is invested in your life, my life. The God of eternity and of heaven is daily groaning on your behalf. I'll tell you, friend, that ought to, that ought to move us. That ought to humble us. Then he comes down to verse 27, and I don't want to distract from what the text is speaking of, but there's really two veins or school of thought as to what this verse means. Okay? Excuse me, not what it means. Uh, of who it's referring to is better description. So don't get lost in it because both of them come to the same conclusion of what Paul is teaching. Okay? So it doesn't really matter, per se, the interpretation that you would take this verse to mean or who it's referencing. The fact is they come to the same conclusion. But I think it's, a, I think it's good uh, doctrinal understanding to, to see what it says. The first one holds that this verse is referring specifically to Jesus Christ as it correlates to verse 34. Look down at verse 34. Uh, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for who? For us. Okay, so uh, that school of thought takes in and says this verse is referring to him and, and establishes that Christ is in heaven making intercession for each of us. And in doing so, he's communicating with the Holy Spirit. He literally knows the mind of the Spirit. And when it comes to our greatest infirmities, our greatest needs, and then he intercedes on our behalf with that knowledge as part of his searching the hearts of all men. And, uh, and what is he trying to accomplish through tandem working, teamwork with the Holy Spirit? Well, Jesus Christ is there in the right hand of God, helping you and I to conform to what? The will of God. Okay? So that's one thought of what that verse, and, and very valid, there's no doubt. It's certainly in keeping with verse 34 in other scriptures. The other vein of thought, or the school of thought, is that the first part of the verse is actually speaking of God the Father. He's the one that searches the hearts, as certainly other scripture uh, uh, speaks of when Samuel anointed David and so forth. So uh, it's that he is the one searching um, the heart of mankind. Um, and as he is privy to the mind of the Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is constantly making his intercession, verse 26 established that, before him on our behalf, uh, how God should work and so forth. And so they're working in tandem as a team, working together to accomplish the will of God in our lives, okay? So uh, you say, okay, 
they both make sense. Exactly. That's my point. I think they both make logical sense, especially considered scriptures. So it doesn't matter which interpretation you might hold to, if we could put it that way, or even if you say, I really have no clue which one that verse speaks to, what it's a reference to. Here's the good news. Here's what we know is true, and here's what Paul's point is, and here's the conclusion that both interpretations agree on. The first one is this, another takeaway. Number one, the Godhead is truly the dream team at work on your behalf. The Godhead is truly the dream team at work on your behalf. Think of it for a moment. Not only do we have the Holy Spirit, but we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are striving for our best interests all the time. And my friend, that's mind-blowing. Who is Stephen Henry? Some speck on the dust of the earth? whose life in eternity's view and divinely looked at, what's life but a vapor? What are any of us? And yet God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit care enough to work on each of us every single day. Christ is there on the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. The Holy Spirit is indwelling us, and yet interceding on our behalf with groanings which cannot be uttered. <laughs> Man, you know, it, it's funny. I, I was alive during, and cognizant during the days of O.J. Simpson. You remember his defense team was called like the dream team and everything else, and how he had all these expensive lawyers and everything else, and apparently somewhat it paid off. Um, <laughs> but uh, you remember that, and boy, it's just like, oh, look, he's got the dream. Listen, my friend, if you wanted an advocate, the best advocate to have is Jesus Christ. And if you and I have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all going to bat for us, I think we're sitting pretty. I think we're doing pretty well. That's what Paul's saying. My, listen, hey, yeah, you and I can sit around. We can complain about this old flesh. We can complain about the sin. We can complain about living in this world. And, and sometimes let's be careful because we do that. We dwell upon how bad the world is and, and how bad this body feels. And, how bad, and we get so caught up in that. Sometimes it does us well to re, be reminded, boy, we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit on our team. And they're going to work for us. You want more clarity? Here's the second one. The Holy Spirit has His mind on you and your greatest infirmities and is interceding for you. Man, I'm so thankful for that. I'm so grateful that the Holy Spirit knows my greatest needs. Even when I don't eat, even when I don't have a clue. And, you know, sometimes some of us, we can be so prideful. We can be so self-absorbent. We can be so focused on maybe somebody else's need that, that we don't even remember to pray for our own greatest needs. But the Holy Spirit is. I like being on the Holy Spirit's mind, don't you? He's thinking about you and I. and He's interceding on our behalf. Literally, could he describe it as such? He is consumed with your good and your betterment. He has a vested interest in your spiritual health and fortitude. He, just doesn't, he, he doesn't just indwell you. He is your advocate before God and heaven in ways we will never grasp. And here's the culminating reality or truth that Paul is getting to throughout this entire book. They all have in common. The ultimate goal of God's will being realized in our lives. And what is the culminating part of God's will? This is what we know. That our groanings would be changed into glory. 
And that's the ultimate part of his, his will. Now, now here's, the, here's the great part. If the team is made up of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and then you and I, guess who the weak link is? Better be careful, amen? Because we know who the weak link is, right? We know who the one is that doesn't yield, the one who doesn't lean on the Holy Spirit, isn't guided and directed by the and we kind of go out our own way, and we kind of mess things up ourselves. So it is really an encouragement by Paul to say, listen, the only one that wavers on this group or in this team is you. The only one that vacillates is you and me. So we must yield to God. We must be on God's page, as Paul describes throughout this book of Romans. And here's the great truth. You know what he says? When we do that, when we get on board with what God is doing, His will, the Holy Spirit indwelling us in the taste of glory, He says this, all things work together for good. Did you catch it? What verse are we on next? Romans eight twenty eight. All things work together for good. To them love God who are the called according to His purpose. 